This is Multifamily Foundation, your show for buying apartment buildings. Now, your host, Jason and Peely. Are you ready to take your multifamily game to the next level? Well, you need to join us October 12th, Saturday, October 12th, for our one-day multifamily foundation workshop. We're going to bring it to you live. We got a list of 15 speakers. They're going to go through the process of everything it takes to get your mind right, get the deal right, learn the terms, understand the markets, learn how to find the deals, learn how to underwrite the deals, learn how to put your team together, everything from property managers to brokers to insurance companies. Beyond that, what's the proper way to raise funds for a deal and how to close a deal and what to do after you take over a deal. So it's going to be a huge event. It's going to be awesome for you to join us. Got a great space. It's going to be here in New Jersey, in Springfield, New Jersey. Of course, it's going to be a one-day event, but we got everything packed in from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Right now, if you put in the code workshop, you're going to get a special discount. And again, that code is workshop, but you need to go to multifamilyfoundationworkshop.com. Again, www.multifamilyfoundationworkshop.com and go fast because we've sold a ton of tickets for this. I actually was able to get a bigger room, so but that's filling up quickly as well. So again, www.multifamilyfoundationworkshop.com. Put in the code uh, workshop. There we go. Got that down and look forward to seeing you so we can all take massive action together. Well, hello again and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Foundation. Thanks for checking back in with us. Happy to be here with you today and super excited about today's show. Of course, if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating review or any review. You know what we like? We just want to hear from you. We want to know what you guys have to say, what you like, what you don't like. Give us better feedback so we can make this show great for you. But you are in luck because today's show is awesome. We're going to talk about stuff that we haven't covered before with after almost 400 episodes is a tall tale. So that is why we're super excited to have Scott Chopin on the show. Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing good, Jason. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. And Scott is the founder of Urban Pacific Group of Companies, a Long Beach, California-based real estate development company founded in 2000 that focuses exclusively on urban infill and affordable housing communities throughout California and the Western U.S. Over the last 18 years, the company has developed nearly 1,700 units of unique-to-market urban housing communities throughout the Western United States. And presently, Urban Pacific has created a new housing innovation called UTH, which provides middle-income multi-generally housing to urban families while producing market superior yields on invested equity. Historically, Urban Pacific's UTH projects have delivered, and get this, 29% IRR yields on equity. Well, Scott, this, this is awesome. And so we, we got a lot to dive in here for, but talk to us about, you know, 2000, right? So, so a lot happening, especially out there in, in California at that time. What drew you to real estate and what was the, the first step you, you got into here to form Urban Pacific Group? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Great question. So I actually have a family background in real estate development. Um, so my uncle, Mike, and my dad, Carrie, were both in the business. Um, each ran their own companies, uh, one in commercial real estate development. And then my dad was uh, almost exclusively an apartment development company. And so I, you know, got the unique uh, advantage of growing up in the business of, you know, real estate development, which is, you know, a, a little obscure, right? It's not your mainstream career choice. 
Uh, so I basically built over, you know, the, the early years of my career, both in my choice of school major, and then going into my early career choices of really intending to build my knowledge uh, of how to be a real estate developer. So I went out and worked for other companies, um, for, you know, a little over five years. And then in 2000, what happened, the company I was with at the time had done some research, uh, using a company called Robert Charles Lesser and company, pretty well-known national market study firm and a guy there at the time Bob Gardner was very bullish on urban infill basically building new construction uh, apartment assets in the city center or city fabric right think of you know not less necessarily you know pure downtown but anywhere that was already urbanized and we would find sites and infill you know apartments into those neighborhoods and the company I was with at the time the the you know the principals were very sophisticated great developers, but this just wasn't their flavor. Let's put it this way. Hmm. And I was like, man, I like at the time, my age, I was like, this is, this is the thing. Like we need to go pursue this. And so that was really the, the, you know, the genesis of the idea of pursuing on my own, uh, urban infill apartment. We have done for sale, but really we're an apartment development company. And that's been our, you know, our stance, you know, up to today, which is we want to be in, you know, urban locations, developing apartment assets. Sure. And so before we jump into the development, you know, I, I have to talk about the family dynamic, right? So lots of times when, when people are growing up, you know, the, the kids run as far as they can from everything that their parents are doing. But <laughs> yeah. you, you dive all in. What, what was it that really stood out to you about development? What was it that drew you to it? You know, actually, the way you spoke it is, is right on the money. In fact, I think this is probably true of all kids. You know, you, you want to do whatever is the opposite of what your parents did, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, run the other way, as you put it. And so for a period of time, that was just not something that I was interested in. But really, two things um, that really, tr- you know, brought forth for me what, how real estate development could be a, a career. So first was that, you know, out of high school, I, I, you know, I wasn't intending to go to college immediately, or at least I didn't have a good plan. So I went and worked in the trades, you know, I was an electrician for a couple of years. And what I noticed at the time, and, and where we were living in Long Beach, in fact, there was a lot of apartment, new construction, this is in the mid 80s, um, just booming apartments. And I, what I remember is working on the job sites, and, you know, electricians are actually probably some of the cleanest trades. You know, you're not getting overly dirty. You know, it takes, you know, most knowledge. But the developers would show up on the job site, Jason. And I would watch them, you know, in between working. And I, because I had the background in it and watched what they were doing, I was like, I want to be that guy. I want to, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, drive a nice car, show up, look at a, a project under construction, you know, point some stuff out, you know, make some decisions. That's how I interpreted it, at least at the time at, you know, all of, you know, 18 and 19 years old, mind you. And um, then, uh, interestingly enough, um, I, I happened to, you know, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. And at the time, in fact, it's still around, I think it's still being published, but there's a book called, you know, how to make a million dollars, you know, investing in real estate on the weekends. Hmm. You've, you've probably even seen it, right? It's one yeah. of those, you know, age old books. And I read through that and it really finally dawned on me. I go, okay, I see what my dad and my uncle are doing. I saw these guys in, in, in the field, right. Seeing, you know, how they are and what they did. And then the financial 
you know, mechanisms were, you know, really shown to me in this book. Now that book was about investing in existing apartment assets and not new construction or development, but I, I could see the, the, the parallels. And so from that point on, which I think I was 18 years old, as I recall, uh, you know, everything I did from that point on was intended to build my knowledge of how to be a real estate developer, you know, school major, school choice, you know, early career choices were all aligned to do that with the end result. I knew I would be, you know, going out on my own as an entrepreneur. Sure. And so you, so you dive into your career path, right? And you start working for that company and speak about the urban infill and the company wasn't best aligned for it, but you saw it. What was it that, that jumped out to you? You said, well, this is it. This is, this is the niche. So when I, when I uh, left the former Pacific, I was 32, um, a Gen Xer. Um, I, to me, it appeared as a highly advantageous living environment to be in a urban location close to where you worked. You didn't get on the freeway and combine that with some really cool housing choices. Think, you know, old, old building brick lofts, really cool, you know, industrial, neo-industrial you know, loft space in downtown LA or downtown Long Beach. And to me, I was like, man, I, I, I would live there. Now, at the time I happened to be newly married and, you know, first my oldest son was born. So we weren't going to necessarily make that choice. But I was like, I could see how other people like me in my generation who didn't necessarily have, you know, family and were maybe more mobile and, and could live that lifestyle, it would be highly appealing. So it was a real personal you know, almost gut level, you know, visceral reaction of, you know, one, the spaces are super cool, right? I mean, you yeah. know, it's, you know, sandblasted red brick and, you know, wood trusses in the roof, you know, boat truck, I mean, just cool stuff. And that just absolutely appealed to me. And I recognized that other people in my generation at the time who were still young enough to live in that environment would be attracted to that. Do you remember what that first project entailed? Like what, what drew you to the first project that you did that you, when you first started Urban Pacific? So, yeah, great question. So at the time when we formed the company in 2000 in downtown LA, a ordinance had been passed recently called the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance. And that ordinance basically was, you know, city of LA is a big bureaucracy, but this is a very entrepreneurial cutting edge ordinance that basically said if you had a historic building or a pre-1973 permitted building, you could convert almost any building that was in these, you know, geographic areas into residential housing. So old industrial buildings, old high-rise office buildings that had been empty, like literally empty buildings in downtown LA for decades. The city said, if these buildings qualify and are in these geographic locations, then we will give you not quite a carte blanche on the zoning and the building code, but a huge amount of relief related to zoning, you know, density, parking, uh, particularly stuff about fire egress, you know, the, you know, fire life safety for the fire department and seismic, you know, you still had to do seismic, but it was to a FEMA code and not to the actual California building code, which would have made the buildings infeasible to build in that or retrofit that way because it would have been too expensive. And so we basically kept, we ended up doing four of those projects, you know, all, you know, you know, hundred to 200,000 square foot office buildings built in, you know, between 1895 and, you know, say 1920. Um, great architecture, Beaux Arts, beautiful exterior, you know, 
um, really, you know, high quality marble exteriors and, you know, statues and, you know, stuff that you just couldn't build anymore. And that fit in that, you know, that ethic of we want the cool building and the cool space yeah. happened to be in downtown LA, which was, you know, semi rough at the time, but it was very early in that new era of urban living. And we were certainly a few years ahead of it by the, so this is 2000, 2001. By the time 2004 rolled around, the market had taken off, you know, and there's all kinds of people. It was that fast that you know, everybody picked up or at least developers got the idea to do that. And going forward to today, how does the strategy change? What is the core focus today? So the core focus always has been and is now that we want to be building new assets in urban locations. So in other words, we're not going to go out in the far perimeter of, you know, the LA basin into, you know, Riverside County, go build, you know, greenfield sites, right? Like never develop sites. Uh, we want to find neighborhoods that are close in to transit, jobs, social networks. So think if you're a family, you have kids in school and your family's close by, those kind of things. And we've never left that that stance or that call that ethic, you know, the standard of how we, you know, operate in the marketplace. Um, and, you know, and <clears throat> if anything, we were early and the market came to us in 2004, 2005, recession came, you know, everything stopped cold. And then, you know, picking back up in, you know, 2010, 2011. Now, by that point, post-recession, now we have millennials and Gen Z coming into their life cycle where they rent and move out of the house or want, you know, move to an urban location for a job. Maybe they work tech and they want to move into, you know, downtown San Francisco. Um, now those generations, those demographics were even more bullish on the urban lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Gen X sort of had its time, then grew out of that life cycle, got kids, you know, needed a, you know, house and, you know, a driveway and all the normal stuff that you have when you have family. And Gen Z millennial has just taken that mantle and run with it. In fact, they're more purely wanting urban living than, you know, any generations we've ever seen. So for development, it's, it's part art, right? Along with, of course, making a project that's, that's going to sustain and be beneficial. So hey, talk to us about some of the steps to, to underwrite a project of this magnitude where you're just basically looking at a canvas and being able to find the highest and best use. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And thinking of it as a canvas is, is perfectly right. So the way I think of it, differentiating between, you know, a value-add investor, value-add sponsor, and then those investors or sponsors in new development, really in three buckets is the way I think of it, Jason. So the first bucket is just your standard multifamily underwriting, the same as you guys do when you acquire existing assets. We do on new construction. So we have to assess, you know, what are market rents, you know, what, what's the purchase price? Is it, is it, you know, coherent with the marketplace? You know, we've got to underwrite operating expenses. You know, we've got to, you know, boost the NOI as much as we can, underwrite our construction loan, underwrite our permit loan, right? So all those are very similar in how, like, the value-add guys do it. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is the development space, right? And I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll say this and I'll come back to it. And then the third one is also what you guys do in value add or anybody does, which is that we're intending to improve an asset so that it can be more valuable at the end of the day, at the end of the investment cycle or whatever period of time that you've agreed with your investors to invest. And then we want to maximize the sale value, right? We want to sell at a profit, right? So 
bucket one and bucket two are the exact same for you guys as it is for us. Okay, now it's the middle bucket that is the differentiator, right? And, and where the real contrast is. And so in bucket two, you have things such as, you know, how to buy land, right? How to underwrite and assess zoning, how to design a building from scratch, right? Because, you know, in value add, you go assess a site and a, a, you know, a community and it's got a mix of one, twos and threes. They have trailing 12 historical records of rents. You know what operating expenses are. We still have to make those same assessments, except now we're creating more from whole fabric, right? Like blank canvas, as you put it. And then we're adding additional variables that you don't deal with, at least in the same way. So now we have to have a whole team of architects, civil engineers, mechanical, electrical, plumbing engineers, right? Those kind of guys that design the whole building from, you know, from nothing. Then you have to, you know, figure out how to build it cost effectively, right? And then, you know, then that's sort of the end of it for the most part. And then you get back into the normal, you know, underwriting, you know, upfront and underwriting the sale. Um, so those are the high level stuff. And we can certainly get into the details of any of those, you know, as you want. I would say that the probably the two biggest, like the, the highest differentiated uh, items in that second bucket are the zoning and the design and then the build, right? So the build costs. Now in value add, obviously you're, you know, changing, you know, paint, carpet, countertops, you know, cabinets, you know, you try not to get into systems if you can help it, maybe a little bit. You certainly try to never touch structural in a, you know, value add asset. You don't want to, if, if, you know, if you're, unless you know what you're doing in that structural domain. So, you know, we're much more intensive in the build cycle and we need higher performing subcontractors, GCs, if you use that. Um, and then on the design side, you, you basically, the way I think of it is when we look for a site, we start first with the neighborhoods that we want to be in. So we've identified, let's say 20 or 25 neighborhoods around Southern California. That would be LA County and Orange County is our predominant focus right now. And then we're looking for certain size site, right? It, you know, piece of land. And then we have to look at and we go, okay, how, how many units can we fit there? Uh, what is it going to cost to build? What are the rents? What are the operating expenses? And then we produce a pro forma that says, yes, this thing's viable. It produces you know, sufficient return to attract capital, maybe market superior to other investments, is, you know, how we want to um, structure it. But inside of that, we're picking the unit mix. We're picking the unit type. And that's from an assessment of the market and more in the context of identifying gaps. So when you go buy 200 units in Dallas that's existing, you're assessing it in the marketplace, but you can't change it. I mean, maybe you could combine two ones into a two bedroom, but that's unusual, right? That would be rare. So you're sort of operating from the already given unit mix and trying to assess, is this a good investment in the context of the market? and then make your choice based on that and other variables. For us, we can actually go into a marketplace and create that mix. We actually produce a unit mix that we prefer that says we're meeting a gap on the marketplace. We've identified a space that's not competed for. So as an example, TH model that you described earlier in your intro is a three-story townhouse rental unit. It's got a garage on the ground floor, two-car direct access garage, three levels of living, but here's the key. It's a five bedroom, four bath apartment unit. And we do that purposely because we've identified in the marketplace that middle income working families in Southern California 
do not have a new construction model that fits their lifestyle. So if you're a family that lives multi-generationally or culturally, you come from a place where families stay together in family groups and you go into the marketplace in Southern California, what you're going to find is a predominance of ones, twos, and threes with really the highest level being twos. And if you have a family of six or eight or 10 people, well, now your only choice is I got to go rent a house, which is fine. I mean, that's, in fact, we say that's our main competition, but that's generally going to be much more expensive. I always say, Jason, our families would always prefer to rent a house if they could. Who doesn't want a backyard and a driveway and a front yard, right? That's the, you know, the American dream. But then we get into affordability questions when that house is 5,000 a month to rent. And then we can supply a virtually similar house that's maybe a little smaller, still has the bedroom, still has the garage, and serve that at thirty-two fifty, right? We can be very much below the comparable rental home marketplace with zero competition in the apartment marketplace. Like actual, you know, projects were built on purpose to rent, right? And so those are the kind of that would be in a an example of a niche or an uncommon offer into a gap or a space in the marketplace that's really not being contested or competed for. And those are the kind of places we want to be. And so when you're looking at this, and you, you talked about find the land, at, at what point does the, the zoning or the land use come in? Are, are you just trying to find sites where you have or the, the use in place or some comparable use, or is that always built in the time and the money to go there and, and convert for use? It, 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 it goes both ways, but I'll, I'll give a little bit of refinement to that. So you can either find a site that's already got zoning in place that works for our product, right? We're like 25 to the acre. That's our density. We look for sites that fit that at what we call a buy right zoning. In other words, we don't have to change the zoning. There's no site plan review, nothing to do at the political level, you know, city council, which is very common for developers. We do that in the UTH program, but historically, if you look at our track record, we've actually uh, tied up and what we call entitled land, which is mean we rezone, we design a site plan, site plan review, maybe we do in California general plan amendment. So, you know, major entitlement, you know, changes to zoning and planning that take a lot of time. Okay. So the first one is UTH by right. And we do that because we can operate and move through the projects quickly. And we also virtually eliminate the risk of, an, of discretionary going to city council and they say no, right. right, which happens in the business, particularly in California. The other side of it is that you find a piece of ground and you do want to change the zoning. You do want to re-entitle it. In that case, we would always buy the land in a long-term escrow that gives sufficient time for us to move through that political process comfortably or we just don't close, right? And so if a seller says to me, look, you know, it needs a zone change and you got 60 days to close, I'm like, you know, no thanks. It's just got not it. a risk we're willing to take. And, and most savvy, sophisticated developers don't take that risk. Some do when they really know the city, they really know the politics, maybe they know the market, maybe they're, you know, have, you know, high identity locally, politically. There, there's always those stories, right? But that's, you know, one-off or rare versus, you know, if we went up to Northern California and wanted to rezone a site in, you know, I don't know, pick any city in the Bay Area, San Francisco, you're looking at a really tough, long road. I mean, actually, San Francisco is a great example. On average, you know, projects are taking between, you know, five and eight years to entitle. Wow. You either have to buy the land and sit on it for five years or you get, you know, five-year escrow period, which 
does happen. It's not particularly common, but those are the kind of stories where we just go, hey, UTH, we want it to be simple, you know, low cost land, um, simple, like no zoning by right. We have hmm. a simple build model. So at, at multiple points in our business plan for UTH, we have, we've moved to simplify the things that, that we choose to do. Like we don't do entitlements. We only do by right. And what that all adds up to, one of the ways we can produce that internal rate return is that we're shortening the time periods of our investments from, you know, acquisition of land, you know, closing on equity and your, and your construction loan to the time that we rent and sell it is, is compacted. It's made more efficient. And that's a key part of why UTH works. What is an ideal timeline for a project for parameter wise, just for concept, just so people can understand from, of course, find the land, closing on the land, you know, getting uh, basically plans in place, shoveling ground, putting this up, stabilizing with rent and selling it. It would depend on the size, but for a small project, you know, let's say, you know, up to, you know, 30 units, you could probably get that done in two to three years. Hmm. If you're a hundred, 200, 300 units, you're probably talking three to five years. And when you're, when you're doing this, uh, what is the structure you do this, uh, bringing in an outside investment? What is How do you structure this with investors so they understand this model? What kind of investors is yeah. interested in this kind of model? Well, I think it's the exact same investors that you guys see in the value add space, you know, high net worth individuals, you know, small and mid-sized family offices. On bigger deals, you would have institutional capital sources you know, the Prudentials of the world and the Goldman Sachs and the Colony Partners and Warehouser, different names like that. So it's the same, you know, menu choice of potential investors. And then our, our, our structures are, you know, very much similar to what you guys see as well. So typically how we underwrite deals, we'll say for the construction period, we'll look at 75% of the capital stack, meaning the cost to build is a debt construction loan. 25% equity, right? And then in the equity, you're going to typically see your same co-invest structure with LP, GP. So 90-10 on the co-invest, 95-5, you know, if it's a, you know, aggressive investor or, you know, a really, really good market. Um, and then, you know, the return characteristics, you know, I, I think Lisa, as I am talking to people more recently, you know, on value add deals that were, could actually make sense, you know, most investors are looking for mid to high teens on an IRR basis for a value add deal. Development deals should produce a higher IRR because there is a higher risk, right? We have to build a new building that does not have any tenants. And then we have to, you know, speculatively build it and find tenants and lease it up and get it stabilized. So there's the additional time risk and it's longer period. And then you're, you know, you're starting from, you know, zero as far as any income. That's why we see a lot of investors that go, it's too expensive to buy in certain markets for value add, like what we talked about at the beginning of the, uh, of the, you know, our, our conversation today. And so they start looking around for development deals because they go, wow, I could get a 22, 25, 30% RR. That's great. And then you sit down and you talk to them about the risk profile. And you know, the, the one that always gets me is they go, okay, so you mean I have to have a, a empty piece of land or an empty building for two or three years until I get some tenants. And I go, yep, that's, you know, development. I don't, and I don't mean to be casual or, you know, you know, punishing about my comment, but that's a reality of development versus, you know, you buy value add and you can at least say, I've got trailing 12. I know what this deal looks like. You know, maybe it's worst case if you're, you know, buying a distressed asset. 
Um, and then I think it was an easier uh, pathway to underwriting rent increases or savings on operating expenses, you know, either one to increase NOI. And so it's a simpler, maybe less risky story or narrative about how I go from here to the end of the deal and make money. And so yeah. that's why you see more investors in that space. And, and it, and no, like, uh, no editorial about that choice. I go, look, that's the choice you need to make as an investor. You need to make the right choice for you. I just say from our standpoint of why we would uh, tell investors there's advantages to new construction multifamily is that you're able to differentiate versus value add on a long-term basis. So as an example, you know, when you invest equity in a new development deal, you end up the day if you're on a long-term hold with a brand new asset, right? Mm -hmm. Perfectly brand new. And it's got all the new bells and whistles. So you got air conditioning, you got parking, you know, you got a dishwasher that's already built into the, you know, the, the design and, and your investment from, from day one. Uh, two is that we see location choice as an option, right? When you go buy, let's say you got to buy a 200 plus unit deal in the Dallas Metroplex, you know, there's only going to be so many deals that are available at any one time that fit that. And then you sort of have to assess the neighborhoods from, you know, let's say there's five deals that are like that and you go, okay, I don't like it in the neighborhoods. Well then, you know, you may choose not to do a deal. We go the other way around, which is like we have our identified neighborhoods, you know, for us, Northern urban Orange County is a great, you know, space for us. Um, blue collar neighborhoods, um, you know, very highly sought after market, you know, good brand recognition for the most part, good schools. And then we can go in there, you know, we don't always find land in those markets, but more often than not, we are able over time to find land at, that's the size and price that we need to make sense to be in that location. And then the last one is just like what I described earlier is you build the unit mix and the unit style that you choose that's identifying and addressing a gap on the marketplace versus value add. If, you know, the building's all two bedrooms and it's in the right neighborhood and the right price, well, you're stuck in essence with the two bedrooms, unless you do something radical and change, you know, unit mix, which does happen occasionally. So those are the advantages that we see, you know, sort of, you know, contrasting value add with new construction. So uh, identifying location, being able to make your own style, and of course, ending up with a new asset are, are awesome awesome hedges to risk. How do you, how do you prepare for, you have a two to five year horizon where just a multitude of things can change. How do you, how do you hedge your risk over that horizon yeah. of timeline? Great question. In fact, on my weekly email, I just, you know, I wrote a fairly lengthy article about as an investor, how to prepare for recession. So it's going to come out three parts. Huh. Um, in, in this instance, we're, so we're doing a couple of things. So we're changing our strategy of how we raise capital. So in the last, let's say from since 2011, 2012, uh, we've really raised capital to merchant build projects, which means we build it, we rent it, and then we sell it. And then we're, you know, we're, we produce our profits, pay back our investors, you know, pay back the loan, and then we're out. Right. Yeah, sure. Now what we're doing is we're saying, look, we, we, we are anticipating a recession at some period of time. Is it 18 months, 24 months? Could it be three or four years? We know what's out there, right? We're at the longest expansion of economic activity in U.S. history. 
yield yield uh, curve is inverted. There's different signals. There's a lot of noise, so it's you know it's it's not you know clear clear that there's recession coming, but we're due. And so we just say, look, we're vigilant about it. We're not in a bad mood. Like we're not going to just you know get out of the market. But what we do is be prudent and prepare and be vigilant. So how that shows up for us is that we're now raising long-term hold equity, think seven to 10 years. And then we still choose the right locations and the right product type, which this UTH model is serving multi-generational blue-collar working families in blue-collar neighborhoods throughout the urbanized area of, say, Southern California, right? What we like about that tenant base and why we see it as a hedge against the recession is that these families are very sticky. Okay, so if you've got your millennial and Gen Z, which is the predominance of all the new apartments being developed, all the big guys are doing the studio and one bedroom product, right? Yeah. Um, urban infill, maybe mid to high density. And, and the, the appropriate choice, given that's a huge demographic, right? Gen Z, millennial combined are the largest cohort demographically in US history. Kids, baby boomers, they're at the right life cycle to come out of the house and rent, maybe early jobs after college. But what we assess about those, that, that demographic, and there's nothing wrong with this. Like this is just, we're assessing how people will act for themselves normally and appropriately. And in a recession, a millennial correctly will say, hey, look, I just got a job in Austin. I'm out, right? Mm -hmm. And I joke internally with my staff. I go, look, millennials and Gen Z perfectly appropriately can be gone to Austin tomorrow. Like, like no kidding. Right. And yeah. so if you look at the entirety of the majority or the majority of the development marketplace, they're serving that demographic. And I go, okay, right now it's good. It's still rents are going up in Southern California, but eventually we're going to hit the recession and then the dynamic changes. And I see mobility in millennial and Gen Z again, perfectly appropriate as a factor for how those buildings do in the mm -hmm. long run. And I think there's going to be, pain there right if you're the last one or two projects into a marketplace and you're renting right when the you know recession hits you know you're going to have to drop your rents that's just the yeah. normal strategy maybe increase recessions and then everybody else is going to do the same so now everybody's just bashing each other to you know you know race to the bottom right for right. rents and what i say is all the big guys the trammel crows the holland partners the amleys of the world those guys can sustain a lot of you know lower rents for a long period of time it's corporate money they're not individual entrepreneurial developers or investors right and they're gonna you know eat everybody's lunch they can drop rents more than everybody else we created UTH in fact because we made the assessment when we sold the last group of buildings that were in that unit mix for millennial Gen Z that we said everybody's piling into that marketplace yeah again appropriately because that's where the demographic growth is but we also are just styles. We said, we don't want to be there. We want to be contrarian. Where is everybody else not? And where is everybody else not that has the correct demand characteristics, right? And that's why we landed on this blue collar, working class, multi-generational family. And when we started to look at it, we said, man, there's nobody serving those, those families with new construction product. What is the number one reason why developments fail? Um, so back to the crate, the, the things I talked about before. So failure would be the entitlement process is not successful. So let's say you bought land and you made a bet that the political 
process would go in your way, right, and not against you, and people like lose because politicians yeah. are politicians, and you know they they you know they're not they're not I don't want to say they're not logical people. This is not to insult particular individuals, but the political process is fraught with peril, right? It's just it is you know that way. Second is the build process that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. particularly people who are new in the business. Um, don't have great, you know, GC or subcontractor networks, um, costs go against them and costs increase. Now all of a sudden the deal doesn't work anymore. Right. And then the third big one is just the value and rents when the project's done and renting up and getting ready to sell. And so this is why we change our strategy on equity because we say, Hey, if we've got a 10 year hold, I can be relatively comfortable that if recession between two and five years from today, in 10 years, I'm going to have gone through the recession and come out the other end. Now, yeah. we're not bulletproof in the recession. Like, I'm not sitting here saying, look, we're, we're never worried about it. But what I say is our UTH model, these blue-collar families, are very stable. They stick around. In fact, I call them sticky because they have social networks, kids in school, their church is close by, their families live adjacent. Maybe they're from there, and then their job is, you know, close by they're not super commuters generally these these particular demographics that we serve and so opposite of the millennial they're going to stay and they're going to basically admit they may you know kids may come home and live with them right maybe grandma moves in with them to you know share costs and share income amongst the family group huh. and we see that as a very stable um you know demographic and then we're serving them with the right unit type right that keeps them you know feeling good about it and plus there's an economic sharing model right it's more bedrooms more people in a family group can live and share income right and costs and so we see that as a stable income generator through a recession right because they're sticky they stay close their jobs are close by they don't leave town um we we underwrite you know at the market but we're not trending rents in our model out two three years we underwrite to today's rents and then we're an uncommon offer. So we don't have a lot of other people competing to build five bedroom units, you know, next door to us. So it's mm-hmm. you know, rare. And then the main thing in that case is what we have to worry about in a, so we raise capital, uh, we rent the units up or build it, we rent the units up, we're holding it. And then we, the main thing we have to worry about if we assume incomes and rents are stable, or let's say rents are stable, then we worry about the value decrease in a recession, right? Maybe go up, values go down, although we're in an incredibly low interest rate environment right now. But let's just say values drop, right? We don't have to sell. This is the beauty of it. We're not forced to sell because equity says, hey, I want to be out in three years. And then the recession's in three years. Oh boy, now I got to sell this asset at the worst possible time. And, you know, so we say, of course, as anybody would, we prefer not to do that. So let's have a 10 year time period on it. And then we just need to adjust how we underwrite firm loans and that value shift time during the recession. But otherwise, our, our incomes are, and or sorry, our rents are stable. So, Scott, this has been awesome. Let's jump over to the snap section question, okay? Sure. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, so, I, I study with a group called the Aji Network up in the Bay Area, and they are uh, big proponents of acquisition of strategic knowledge. And so, it would be continuous aggressive competitive learning uh, is the most important thing I do and the networks I have around me and what I would advise anyone and everyone to do. Think about it today. We're in the most highly technologically advanced, most competitive global marketplace in human history. 
we need to orient our learning around you know computer-based learning with powerful networks to acquire strategic knowledge so we can compete effectively in this new era of you know technology what's your real estate superpower real estate superpower so my my best the best part of what i do is in that early acquisition like think of it creating the deal right so i see a piece of land i go what goes there what problems do i anticipate and i so i have a background you know i'm not professional but i've always been a musician my entire life and i've you know i've just made my own music i don't call myself a songwriter or anything like that but the creation process to me is almost exactly a mirror of what I do in the early parts of the real estate development deal. I'm looking at all the different pieces and I put them together in unique ways to create value. And so that creation in the real estate development space is you know, how I'd answer that question. What is a, a lesson learned on a project that's regardless if it was a hard lesson has definitely propelled you forward? Yeah, no, great question. So what happens to people who are early in their real estate investment or development careers is they always assume the most positive case for a deal. Like everything's going to go right. Costs won't go up. Rents won't go down. Operating expenses are going to stay stable. And so the lessons I always bring to our deals right now is we just underwrite the reality, right? There's no point in sort of pretending that things aren't going to be different than what we might, you know, judge or make the assessment. In fact, my joke is when I was young in my career, there was every deal was possible, Jason. There's no deal that I saw that couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And now I'm the opposite. I'm like, you know, there's most deals won't make it. And I'm just fine with that. And then occasionally one sort of rises out of the soup and, you know, meets all the tests and, you know, all that stuff I throw out to break it. And when that deal comes along, you go, that's the right deal. Uh, that's awesome. Wait, what's your greatest tip for success? Um, you know, not to repeat myself, but I think that's the continuous competitive learning. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's so applicable to any place. And real estate development is a very obscure business with zoning and putting the deals together. So it's not mainstream. So if you were to, you know, somebody wanted to start a career on that, you know, that learning process would be highly valuable, but then it doesn't stop, right? Yeah. You've got to keep going. you got to see what the what's new how you can use new tools new technologies to remain competitive and i mean let's admit the real estate business is not the most you know forward looking on you know use of technology we're sort of like old school ancient technology still you know are are fairly commonplace so i'm a big proponent of you know the learning and then you know using new technologies to advance and and to be more competitive than everybody around us who we, of course, compete with, you know, day in, day out. Well, Scott, I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a ton. This has been great chatting. What's, uh, for listeners, what's the best way to find out more about you, find out more about Urban Pacific Group and Connect? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I would encourage everybody just to go to our website, which is www.urbanpacific.com and take a look there. We've got a lot of investor education uh, articles, blog posts, uh, you know, about, you know, investing in new construction deals and just, you know, being a good investor uh, we, you know, there's deals that we're raising capital on now there. And then obviously, you know, a lot of background about us, but most particularly I would encourage people to go look at our blog. I write a weekly email blast that we also post on our blog with, which just basically is a collection a curation of all the articles I read, which I'm, you know, I'm reading, you know, daily as, as probably you are, 
And uh, so I just, I curate those and, you know, I'll, I'll look for new trends, new ideas, market shifts, market drift. Um, you know, what's the latest market assessment about, you know, multifamily. And I share that out into the, you know, into the internet, into, into the internet, internet domain, sorry. And then also, you know, put it out on our social media channels. So we're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you just search for my name, Scott Choppin, um, you know, you'll find me, you know, pretty much in all those places and you'll see, you know, the consistency of the, you know, the curated information that we put out about, you know, being an effective real estate operator and investor. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Awesome. And to you all the listeners out there, again, thank you for checking out the show. Talk to you shortly.